You're listening to the Trust Issues Podcast. I'm David Puner, a Senior Editorial Manager at CyberArk, the global leader in identity security. Welcome back, or welcome for the first time to another episode of Trust Issues. Thanks for checking us out. Today's episode is part two of my conversation with former White House CIO and current CEO of Fortalist Solutions, Teresa Payton. If you missed part one, you can start here and go back to that episode, or you can start there and come back to this one, but you're already here, so maybe just stay. Let's get right back into it with Teresa Payton. Now we've sort of shifted to talking about machines and that kind of leads into AI, which is something that I've been excited to to talk with you about. I've done a lot of thinking and reading about ChatGPT, as I'm sure everybody really has at, the, at this point. Um, and I was reading your book, uh, your last book, that is Manipulated, which came out in 2020. When all bookstores were closed. Yeah, it was a good time to launch your book. <laughs> in it, you got into, among other things, AI and deepfakes and synthetic IDs. ChatGPT, which seems to be a significantly advanced development in this realm. Um, it seems like a momentous development um, and, and very um, exciting and scary at the same time. What's your take? Um, and are we, you know, as a society prepared to handle the implications that can potentially bring deepfakes and manipulation campaigns and the threat landscape in general? We're not prepared. Propaganda campaigns have been around since there were two human beings walking the earth, right? And so propaganda isn't always bad. You know, sometimes it's to help society understand a way of thinking needs to evolve uh, and to, you know, move forward. Propaganda in and of itself, it's got a bad connotation today, but it can actually be something that's positive. You know, things like a propaganda campaign around getting uh, America's kids fit and healthy and making good food choices. I think we'd all agree that is a great campaign. It could be virtuous if it's done the right way. The problem with propaganda campaigns now, because like you mentioned, deep fakes, AI tools now like chat GPT and other tools that are all on the surface meant to be for good things and altruism. They're always misused and misaligned by people with nefarious intents. We've known for years that this is part of human nature to manipulate and misinform others to get them to see your point of view. And then basically we gave them a free stage with social media and all they had to do was understand how search engine optimization and hashtags worked. And next thing you know, You've got your own amplification marketing campaign. I mean, in some regards, I think retailers and companies, you know, would really marvel at what some of these misinformation experts are actually able to accomplish with very little money. This has really led to sort of this rapid spread of misinformation on all types of topics, everything from pump and dump schemes for cryptocurrency, health, politics, science. Um, deep fake technology, all of these can be used to create you know, fake news, propaganda, disinformation. And now with artificial intelligence, we already saw where artificial intelligence can help 
you know, botnet masters much more effectively manage their botnets. We've already seen where, you know, social media platforms try to uh, ensure that you're not dealing with a bot and having a tool like ChatGBT and other deepfake tools and AI tools uh, really just puts more power in the hands of the manipulators and the misinformation and disinformation peddlers. It's making it really challenging. I think on the hopeful side, each and every one of us being our community and watching out for each other and spotting and stopping these misinformation and disinformation campaigns, reporting it to social media platforms of you know inauthentic behavior or somebody pushing misinformation, disinformation that's dangerous to somebody's health or well-being. I think what's really encouraging is you're starting to see come out of big tech, out of academia, think tanks, where individuals are saying, you know what, I think we can create models to detect AI, deep fakes, bots, much better than we're doing today. But we're back in the situation where this is an arms race. Is it going to be the good guys on the side of authenticity and authorization and access controls? Um, really rooting out what's human behavior and what's not, or are the bad guys going to win this one? It may just be a leapfrogging uh, type of exercise for many years to come. The potential for the stakes to have gotten much higher uh, are there. It's just a matter of like what's going to emerge from from this. Obviously, propaganda that's huge and has huge ramifications. But what about the potential for tax to be perpetrated via AI? bots or whatever it may be. That potential is there. I did a prediction for 2023 back in 2021 that AI would start to launch misinformation and disinformation campaigns as well as cyber crimes without human intervention. So basically an engineer would set it up, mm-hmm. do the machine learning, the behavioral-based analytics, you know, really a lot of what people call AI is not true AI, it's more machine learning. Um, but really get sophisticated enough in sort of building the algorithms that they would actually start launching things on their own. I hope I'm wrong, but I don't see anything in place right now that can detect and stop uh, AI from launching, whether it's a, a botnet attack, a ransomware attack, or some type of a misinformation or disinformation campaign against an individual, against an organization based on trending hashtags. And if you think about it, the engineers who set it up, they have a lot to gain um, if these uh, AI algorithms are successful. So if they are able to get something to go viral and they've got ad campaigns kind of hiding behind those, they can get pennies on the click. If they you know, destroy the reputation of a company You know, that's something that nation states are always very interested in having access to. And then, of course, you know, any of the garden variety of different types of cyber attacks, if they can train AI to launch that without uh, basically human intervention, that would be very popular on the cybercrime platforms uh, where you can do cybercrime as a service. In the book, you mentioned... Quote, fraudsters and scammers will leverage cutting-edge deepfake AI technology to create clone workers backed up by synthetic IDs. We obviously are focused on um, identity security. What are the implications for fake identities and how does identity security potentially come into play here? Yeah, I mean, 
cyber, you, you got to get busy. This is where your human user stories are so important because you can look for all the different opportunities to say, well, this is a machine to machine interaction. So how do we do the right level of identity access management? How do we maintain it? Uh, how do we do continuous monitoring of that access control, anomalous behaviors? And then you could do sort of the human to machine and, and all of those different types of interactions and decide, again, based on your data classification and governance, where you need to be the strictest and where you need to be the strongest. And my prediction for 2024 is that uh, basically that Franken frauds and deep fake AI personas will actually enter the workforce. Franken fraud is kind of a nickname myself and other people use, but synthetic identity fraud is, is kind of the main um, term if you look it up. And Basically, what's happening is just to give everybody just a quick little primer without deep fakes and without AI, you have synthetic identity fraud now, where individuals who are very sophisticated in how uh, credit being granted works and applying for things in other people's names and getting away with it have a twist on it. And the twist is they start to apply for different things. In a different name, they've created sort of a fraudulent identity, but then they layer it on top of your or my legitimate identity. So now all of a sudden, you know, there's different things layered on Teresa's identity, but it's, but it's David's stuff. So then when people do their automated pulls and they see kind of a match, um, and you're at sort of the lower end of the spectrum on getting credit for different things, it gets missed and it gets approved. And I'm simplifying this. There's a little bit more to it. But so take that synthetic identity now and now create a deep fake AI persona, create an image of this new identity, create video, create a person. And you can do all that. You can do all that mostly for free today. Um, add voice to it. And now the next thing you know, you've got somebody who can interview for a job. Many jobs today are remote. And so you may unknowingly hire a deep fake persona because they've matched up that deep fake persona with synthetic or Franken fraud. So how do you safeguard against that? Well, for starters, you really do need to understand how to safeguard your executive data and your employee data. Mm -hmm. And secondly, if you do do remote hiring, a best practice you want to implement now is have an outsourced firm, whatever geography your person is in, have them come into an office, mm -hmm. have them present different forms of identification. And it's not going to cost you that much, but it's going to be a way to make sure you're actually hiring the real person you think you're hiring and not some type of a, a deep fake Franken fraud individual. And I know people think this sounds too good to be true, but but seriously, it can happen. Right. So if you do hire a one of these Franken fraud identities, is the point of their doing this to get in and get access, or is it because they actually think that they can get on a payroll and start collecting uh, salary somehow? It's different motives. So in mm -hmm. some cases, it's the motive is for insider threat. Um, getting hired onto a certain project, getting hired to interact with the group that works on certain technology. Uh, and, you know, as themselves, 
um, they may not pass muster, but as a synthetic identity, they might. Um, and you may say, well, you know, they're not a computer engineer. They're in an administrative role supporting or research analyst. So if you think about today, you can't put everybody through the same level of background check. You know, you don't put the CEO and your lowest level individual through the same exact scrutiny of a background check. It would bog down the process and be very expensive. Right now, because of the the level of technology they have access to, they tend to go for the lower level positions, remote work. Maybe you're doing transcription, maybe you're typing up notes, maybe you're doing spreadsheet analysis, but every work at home job that you create could potentially be a target for this. And so you're going to need to have some way of screening and making sure you've got legit people with legit backgrounds working for you. It all sounds so crazy, but it's so it's so real. I guess shifting over to, to regulations, increased regulations. Um, how do you think various cyber regulations around the world that are either rolling out or have recently rolled out will make an overall impact on cybersecurity and international cyber attacks? Regulations can be helpful because, you know, it's a flag on the top of the mountain that everybody has to go achieve. And everybody talks in the same vernacular. Sadly, I think a lot of the time it's payday for consulting groups to say, we do that and we'll help you achieve your compliance. There's some goodness that comes out of regulations um, because it gets everybody talking the same way. And it's like a checklist everybody can rally around and and have a roadmap and have a maturity life cycle and milestones and make progress. But my challenge with most regulation, it is based on preventing terrible events that have already happened. And so by the time it's written, it's really obsolete. Cyber criminal tactics have moved on. Technology's moved on. How we use technology's moved on. And we're litigating backwards stuff that's already happened. And so it makes it hard to make progress when you're always doing a checklist on something from the past. And you see our laws don't keep up with the technology. Our court system for the victims certainly doesn't keep up with technology. And so, so that's my challenge. And you know, I often say, you know, sometimes the laws and the regulatory frameworks in some regards were the worst thing to happen to true cybersecurity because you spend so much time making sure you've checked off every single thing on the box that you haven't got any time left for creatively thinking through, okay, what else could be a problem? If you know, if you're tracking some of these recent data breaches, I would bet you if you asked them the last time they had an audit, did they pass their audit against the regulatory frameworks? They probably did. Um, so you know, it's like a health checkup. It's like you get your annual physical and you could get sick two days later, even though you get a clean bill of health, right? And our systems are very much in sort of that same analogy of you know, it's a point in time. We don't do continuous monitoring of compliance against laws. And 
in some regards, the tools help with that on paper. That sounds amazing for everybody to think about doing. But in practice, it's really hard. You're just like achieving zero trust architecture. It's it's hard. It's a lot of talking. It's a lot of changes. As somebody who had to implement systems and encrypt data, it's hard. Yeah. All of the things that I'm saying here for the people who are listening to me and have to implement these things, I see you, I hear you, and I have walked in your shoes. Mm. I know what I'm recommending is not easy. And that's why I always get very pragmatic and say, do your data classification. And when you focus on these remedies and these strategies, focus there first. Um, And it's the same thing with regulation. So, you know, the regulation, for example, GDPR, if you think about in the United States, you've got CCPA out of California, you've got some of the laws that have come out of New York. Um, Canada's got a whole level around, you know, kind of privacy considerations that are slightly different than GDPR. Again, these are all well-meaning and very important because we do need a flag to go look at and say, as a team, we're all going to make it to that flag and we all have to participate in making sure the organization gets there. But if all the time is spent getting to the flag and there's no time left to do the creative work, you're still going to have a catastrophe on your hands when you have a breach. So when you work with clients as the CEO of Fortalist Solutions, how often are you stepping into these meetings for the first time where worst case scenarios happen and they don't know where to start? We only do incident response for clients that we work with. It's a very crowded market space. There's some amazing Um, vendors and colleagues out there that that's the majority of what they do is incident response. And for me personally, meeting somebody for the first time in their darkest hour, that's a, that's a really hard time to meet somebody for the first time. It's better to have organizations sometimes that that's all they do. That's all they think about. And they kind of move on to the next incident. But for our clients who we know and we've worked with and they kind of hit that darkest hour. Yes. Um, One of the things I'm particularly proud of is we have not had a person get fired because something bad happened. Because a lot of times I spend time with the executive team talking about what are your worst nightmares? Why don't we, why don't we just voice those out loud? And then let's talk about mitigating strategies to make those worst nightmares not so bad. And then let's get that roadmap in place. And rarely do I see true brazen negligence where somebody really should be fired. It's best faith efforts doing the best they can with the resources they've been given. Um, But one of the things when kind of these terrible things happen is really sitting down and saying, we have a playbook for this. Where do you want to start with the playbook? And that's why those incident response playbooks are so helpful. They're not going to be the exact recipe in the middle of the incident, but they are going to guide the conversation. So for example, hey, we said in the playbook, we did all kinds of scenarios and said, we're never going to pay the ransom. So why are we talking about paying the ransom when we did this playbook and you all said, no, 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 no. What's the new scenario that we didn't think of here? And then in some cases, you're like, you're right, we're not going to pay the ransom, but the insurance company says they want us to. 
So, you know, that to me, having that playbook and having had those conversations before the emergency, even if it's not the exact thing you rehearsed, the organization will have the muscle memory to not only survive, but on the other side of it, thrive. And if you've done your homework and you've thought about it, and through your best faith efforts, you still have an issue. My biggest advice I always give to the executive team is be as transparent as you can, as soon as you can, without tipping your hand to the cyber criminals or other criminals. Transparency, ethics, following the playbook is huge. I also tell executives that before a bad incident happens, that's actually the time to let your customers know. We actually have a process if we ever experience a data breach and your accounts are of grave concern, these are the ways we'll contact you and we will not contact you these ways. And by letting your customers know that there's a certain way that you will do outreach and there's a certain way for them to get in contact with you, you can help avoid those opportunistic fraudsters um, when that breach happens. And it also shows your customers you're thinking about this. I find that some of the organizations I work with who have been through really tremendously difficult times and outages that people gave them grace and space. And on the other side, they were able to survive that horrible, horrible situation. And on the other side, thrive. Thank you for that. Really, really interesting. How are CISOs and other corporate protector, protectors, how are CISOs and other corporate protectors faring in, in general? I mean, it seems like they're, they're in very stressful positions and the tenure span doesn't seem all that long in general. Do you consider them to be protectors? What advice do you have for CISOs in today's, um, amid today's landscape? We have to be a student of our jobs. The job is changing every day because the technology, the human user stories change every day. That means opportunities for cyber criminals and fraudsters change every day. And so the role of the CISO continues to evolve. And one of the things I would encourage a CISO to be thinking about is you will never have the full span of control that you probably should have to protect all of the digital assets under your organization's care. And you really do need to understand that and, and once you understand that, ask yourself how you can influence organizations so that there's security by design. And I'll give you an example. You're never going to have enough tools and budget and people, even if you could hire every rec you wanted to and everybody said, I'm quitting my job and I'm going to go work for this one CISO with this one organization. You're never going to have the span of control you think you should have um, to make sure everything's secure. So what we really need to be thinking about and influencing is sort of that security by design. Just at Immaculata University recently, and we actually have an offensive cyber operations course available to the public and, and the students. And 
dawned on me because we were talking about engineering and all the different majors and how some of those majors are now getting a certificate in cybersecurity. And I said, you know, it's interesting. Engineering and architecture has been around for hundreds and hundreds of years. And we don't build a building and then say, well, now that it's mostly built, why don't we bring in the people who think about building security and ask them what they think about earthquakes, fires, floods, and um, high winds. Like we've learned the hard way with bridges collapsing and buildings collapsing. That's not the way to build a building. We are still in sort of the immature stages of how we think about building applications, whether it's mobile apps, whether it's internet, whatever it is, we are still in those immature stages where we say, hey, now it's time to get the CISO in here. And even if they haven't built anything, it's already too late. Is the CISO going to sit with the developers the whole time? Is the CISO going to sit with the third-party marketing firm doing internet campaigns with social media platforms? Um, So how do you make sure you have influence um, everywhere within the organization. And you don't do it by being a bottleneck and saying no to everything. You do it by figuring out what is the mission and the value set of our organization. And based on those human user stories of our employees, our customers, our third-party vendors, based on those human user stories, Where do things need to be secure? And how do I influence the people responsible for that human user story? That is where CISOs need to go with their thinking. And if you don't wake up every morning thinking about that in addition to what you're doing today, you're going to miss a unique opportunity to have a long lasting legacy and impact. You're talking about the CISO and the CISO's team and and it gets us to cybersecurity professionals. And of course, we talk a lot about the cybersecurity talent gap, um, the shortage. What do you see as the primary challenges when it comes to the cybersecurity talent gap? You know, what's interesting is I see it less as a talent gap. We have a creative gap in taking current applied work experiences or school experiences and translating that into filling a cybersecurity role with the proper mentorship, coaching, and training. So we actually have an experience gap. And part of the reason why we've been developing training for years is I really want to be a disruptor in removing the barriers of entry into cybersecurity. Um, So for example, having to achieve a degree and or a certification in cybersecurity today, it basically eliminates people who don't have the economic access to afford a two-year degree, a four-year degree, a certification. They don't have time to step away from the job to study for the certification, pay for the boot camp, pay to test and retest. The failure rate when somebody takes some of these certifications the first time, is 60%. We as an industry should not be applauding ourselves for that. Why are we eliminating people from the industry? It's almost like we created some cool kids club and we won't let anybody else in unless they're as cool as us. So we have to open our mindset. And it starts with 
the job descriptions everyone's writing. Most job descriptions that I read have the alphabet soup of degrees and certifications. They're all in search of the same person. I see these job descriptions, you know, saying a junior role needs five years of experience. Where are they supposed to get that experience? I read these job descriptions and I got to say they are soul crushing and you are eliminating from a DEI perspective so many people. So when people ask me why there's a talent gap, I have to push back on them and say there's a creativity gap in hiring managers. We really have to think differently. If you look at my organization, whether it was the people who worked for me in banking, the White House, and today at my company, not everybody has a degree. Not everybody started off in cybersecurity. Some people were music majors. Some people were in the military or law enforcement. But I saw something in them. I saw an insatiable desire to problem solve. I saw a desire to contribute to the greater good, to fight back against cybercrime, to, under our watch, not have other victims. You know, when I worked in financial services in the White House, I also had technology deployments to do as well. And I saw a desire where people wanted to take their skills and truly help other people through those human user stories using technology. And you can train, coach, and mentor. Now, that's not to say you can have a whole team of people who are all inexperienced and say, yay, now we're going to be a great team. Of course, you've got to have different levels of experience. But why are all your job openings, why are they all written that way? And why do you have such barriers to entry? Why don't you look for an opportunity to take a chance on people? And you'll find in the process, you know, people say to me, how do you have such diversity, equity, and inclusion at your small company? And I'll tell you, uh, my team knows. I will say to them, I, I will not start interviews until I see a diverse slate of candidates. And from all different walks of life, all different backgrounds. Now, I do have some clients, they tell us, especially the government clients, they tell us exactly what they will accept on their billets. But as it relates to the other work, we have more leeway. And so we, we've made a commitment to that. Really interesting and really inspiring. Teresa Payton, it's been an honor. Thank you so much for, for all the time you've given us. Um, where and when can uh, folks, if interested, go and read your, your new uh, predictions for 23-24? Yes, we're in the process of getting those uh, posted. So uh, stay tuned for more um, on our Affordable Solutions blog. So I love trust issues, but I always say it's not a trust issue or paranoia if it's true. Which has been really, really interesting and, and fun. Thank you for all your time. Uh, really appreciate it. Well, thank you and keep up the great work. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Trust Issues. We'd love to hear from you. If you have a question, comment, constructive comment, preferably, but, you know, it's up to you. Or an episode suggestion, please drop us an email at trustissues at cyberarc.com. And make sure you're following us wherever you listen to podcasts. 